Thank you to Chris and Crystal for their update. Just as a reminder, on June 28th, we are doing our Mission Sunday, and our hope is to raise $15,000 to support their work. And any part of that that you could be, I would deeply appreciate. I know some of you have been affected financially during this time, and if you're unable to give, that is understandable. But for those of you who haven't, I encourage you to think about how you could be generous to give to this great effort. We as a church have been dedicated to giving them $30,000 a year, 15,000 of which comes out of our budget every year. And then we have the mission Sunday where we try to raise another 15,000 for them. And this is the fifth year that we've done that, which if we do succeed this year, which I'm prayerful and hopeful that we're going to be able to do that, that'll be $150,000, which you all have been part of giving to blessing a part of the world that desperately needs it, especially during the time of coronavirus. And I'm so excited and prayerful for how we can be generous to this fantastic cause and continuing to bless Chris and Crystal in their ministry. I'm so proud of the work that Chris does to um, get the video collected and to help to tell the story of kids who are hungry and in need during this time. So I hope that you can participate on June 28th, but you can give at any time over these next few weeks. Just go to glendale.church slash give. And you can find the drop-down box on that page for missions. And anything that you give there will go 100% to Chris and Crystal's work, which I'm really proud to participate with. We are starting a new series this morning called The Struggle is Real. Because let's be honest, the struggle is very real in 2020. We are about halfway through the year. And I know I'm certainly hoping that some of the things that have gone on, some of the intensity that we're experiencing will slow down a bit. That We've had a whole lot to, to think about and to act on and to think about how we can move forward as, as a church and as people of God. But 2020 has been extremely hard. There's a comedian who tells a story about what would happen if she was to interact with the January version of herself. She says they would have a conversation, the January version would say, wow, those Australian fires, those are devastating. Those are going to be the big story of 2020, aren't they? And the June version of herself would just pat January version of herself on the back and say, ah, you ain't seen nothing yet. 2020 is going to keep coming at you. I think when I think of the word struggle of an older member of our church on my wedding day who came up to me and said, Brian, I want you to know all of life is a struggle. When you were born, it was a struggle for you and your mom, which is not an image I wanted to think about, especially on my wedding day. But then he said, and when you die, it's going to be a struggle. And everything in between is a struggle. Stay in the struggle, my friend. And he walked away. Certainly not the type of advice that you would expect to get on your wedding day. But I will tell you, it's the only piece of advice that I got on my wedding day that I actually still remember. So it's led me to a little bit of a calling for my life. I want to be weird wedding advice guy. Um, so that's a good, good thing for me to maybe lean into because it seems like a good space for me to be in. But I always remember him telling me that, that all of life is a struggle. And I know for all of us, we would probably say, yeah, 2020 is that. We might not have been able to name what was our hardest year before this year. This one is incredibly difficult. What does it look like for us to struggle with hope and to find God's presence even in the struggles that we have? How could we be people who consistently act for God in all seasons and in all places? I think one of the problems and the reasons why we 
struggle, frankly, with this is because our lives are very segmented. We have our, our church selves and we have our work selves and we have our, our family selves and all of these spaces that we have. And oftentimes we aren't willing to invite God into all of those spaces. Yeah, God, I'll let you take care of things after I die. But for now, I'm just going to hold on to the money and make sure that I'm taking care of myself. Or God, I'll worship you at church, but when people are making jokes at work that I probably should say something about, I'm just not really going to say anything. So when we think about our lives, we often don't think about inviting God into everything. What does it look like for us to live more into God's presence? Last week, Lars did a great job comparing Psalm 23 to the Lord's Prayer to finish off our series on the Lord's Prayer. I'd never even thought of it before, how the comparison and how they totally work together. So I was really thankful for his message on that. And he helped us to think about how we could have a God-centered perspective in every moment of life. But I want to focus on an aspect of Psalm 23, arguably the most famous passage of Scripture that I hadn't noticed until very recently as we think about what it looks like to live life in the midst of struggle well. So Psalm 23, starting with verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a passage that helps us to think about God's perspective and what it would look like for us to invite God into all moments of our lives, the, the high highs and the difficult lows. There are three things that this psalm asks us to do. Much of it is God-centered. But the psalm says this, I shall not want, I shall not fear. I will dwell in the house the Lord. I have to tell you, if we could do these three things well, I think we could participate more and more with God's life in the here and now. Let's look at each of these. In some ways, Psalm 23 gives us a three-point sermon. I shall not want. The Hebrew that is used there, in fact, your Bible might translate it something like, I lack nothing. It's a word about lacking. What is it for you that you can focus a little bit too much on that you don't have? What is it that you can think of? If only I had, perhaps for you, it's getting married one day or having kids one day or buying a house one day. You have all of these things that you say, God, if you could only, like whatever it is that I want, that I think I need, that's what I'm asking of you. And if you just do that, then things would be so much better. My life would be great, and I would just worship you. I'd be at church every Sunday. I'd be there. So often, we can think from our lives not about the abundance that we have, but whatever one thing or many things that we're lacking. 
We can have this perspective that causes us to think about the ways that our lives aren't perfect and the things that we wish that God would do for us instead of finding some space every single day to say, God, I trust in your provision because you've been good to me and I am going to choose to look at the good in my life. I'm going to choose to recognize that, yes, my spouse isn't perfect, or yes, my friends aren't perfect, or my life situation isn't perfect, but I'm going to find some time to be content. And I know that that's hard, especially during times like this, moments when we are all sad about racial injustice in our world, and it matters. And that doesn't mean that you don't try to make as much of a difference as you possibly can to bring about more of God's kingdom and reign to the earth. And you give your passion and your heart and your gifts to that. That's so important, and we all need to do that. But even as you give your life to things that are important and things that really matter, can you say every day, yeah, this isn't perfect, this isn't the best situation, and there's some stuff that I need to fight with my whole life and to really give my life to, but even as our world isn't perfect, as our country isn't perfect, as it's broken, I, I still will find some time every day to say, yeah, I'm going to think about the good that I do have in my life. Because I've seen people whose lives have been destroyed by getting angry even for the right reasons. And letting that just dip into every part of their life. Something that I've noticed being a not really young pastor anymore. I've been at this for 12 years, and so I'm definitely in like the young-ish stage, or maybe not even the ish. Maybe I've moved into the middle-age pastor role, but I've been at this for about 13 years now. It's been a, a great joy of mine to minister here at the church for all of my time. But something that I've noticed about people who are unhappy about church is this, and I've made this very helpful pie chart for you who are watching from home. So what I've noticed about people who are consistently unhappy about church is that they aren't just consistently unhappy about the, the church segment of their life. It's not like that's just, okay, I'm just really consistently unhappy about this one hour or this place that I go for a little bit of time. What I've noticed is that consistently unhappy people about church are consistently unhappy about everything. They're consistently unhappy about every part of their life. If you focus on lacking all the time, whatever it is, if you are going to have the, the, the critical voice that's in your head, if you're constantly going to be complaining, it doesn't just affect one area of your life. It goes into everything. A common thing that Mandy and I say to each other is legit people don't complain. People who are happy about their life and, and have some sense of contentment, even as life isn't perfect for anybody, don't complain. If you don't focus on whatever it is that you're lacking, then you can have a different perspective. If you want this picture, I could autograph it and mail it to you. Just write it in the comments. I don't think that anybody actually will, but what does it look like for you to look at your life and say, yeah, I don't have everything together. There are things that are wrong about the, the world. There are things that are hard specifically for me, but how could I say, but I still trust that God is here with me even as I lack some things. 
And don't allow the lacking to be the thing that you focus on because it's a dangerous place for your heart to be. In fact, the beginning of that psalm invites us to think about God's restoration, that God, you restore my soul. And for us to experience that restoration, what God wants to do in our hearts, we can't think about all of these things, perhaps, that we lack. For God to do God's best work in our hearts, we need to say, God, I recognize your goodness. Now, please go to work on my heart so I can strive to be the person that you want me to be every single day. The psalm continues, I will not fear. This is something that is extraordinarily hard, and we always need to think about God's presence and what God is doing for us as we try to live without fear as our main controlling mechanism. But when we fear, we often just become fortune tellers. We play out the worst case scenario And we think about how it's all going bad because this one thing happened or this situation is going to take this crazy direction and it's just not really that helpful. We just think about all the things that could go wrong. One of my friends who's a minister says 99% of the things you're afraid of won't ever happen. I think that's something that I try to say often to myself and to us as a church. Because we often can just go to this space where it's like, okay, what is it that's happening? And what does that mean? And what is the impact of this? When I think about that, I can't help but think of one of my favorite stories about my growing up when I was in 11th grade playing high school baseball. And as I've mentioned before, mostly I watched. I didn't play all that often, but I was there for the games. And in one of the games, we were up 15 runs. And the coach said to me, Brian, go, go get a bat and hit. I was a pitcher, so I never hit. So I'm standing in the on-deck circle and we're up in the game, and the hitter before me hit a home run. The bases are clear, and I go up there, and this pitcher who's in when you're up that many runs is not very good from the other team. So he walks me on four balls, and it's not even close. Very easy for me to just look at it and recognize they weren't even anywhere near the strike zone. And so I head down to first base, and the guy behind me takes ball one, ball two, ball three, ball four, and I start walking down to second base. And I get about halfway between first and second when I realize something weird is in the air. Everyone's looking at each other. The catcher is shrugging. And in that moment, I immediately realized that that was just ball three to the next guy and not ball four. And I didn't know what to do. So then I just ran the rest of the way to second base. And I got there before the throw. It was my only high school stolen base. The shortstop tried to tag me, but I was already on the base. And he starts yelling at me right away. He says, you can't run on us up 15 runs, which if you don't know much about baseball, it's an unwritten rule that you don't show up the other team by stealing bases when you're up a lot of runs. So I said, you know, I'm sorry about that, but do you think I meant to do that? Did you see what just happened? I didn't mean to do that. He said, it doesn't matter. Next time you come up, we're going to hit you in the head. And I still remember the anger in that guy's eyes, and it was a very serious threat to me. But we were up 15 runs, and the game was likely to end by the mercy rule, so it really wasn't that big of a deal. But this pitcher was really bad, and he kept allowing walks and hits and runs. We ended up winning that game by 23 runs. I distinctly remember that. And I found myself with two outs standing in the on-deck circle. 
and I hadn't been smart. I have a very large head, and I forgot to get the extra large helmet. I had the medium, which sat uh, very much like a yarmulke on the top of my head, wasn't really covering much of anything. And I remember standing in the on-deck circle, praying to God like I've never prayed before, please make this last guy get out, because if I go up there, I'm going to die. I'm going to hit me in the temple, and I'm not going to survive. That was literally what I was thinking. And thankfully, that hitter did pop out to short. It was out number three, and that's why I'm still alive today. It's interesting to look back on stuff that you were once like very, very afraid of. I was very afraid of that moment, and I think, wow, I wish I could talk myself down from that a little bit. This guy couldn't throw a strike to save his life. I don't think he's going to be effective at throwing it exactly at my head where I would actually like severely get injured from it. I don't think he has great accuracy. Would they really have thrown at you in that moment? I don't think necessarily that they would have. But it's easy for me to look at 11th grade Brian and say, come on, man, why are you afraid? But then to find myself in 2020 thinking about all of the things that have happened during this year, thinking about coronavirus and what it means for our church, thinking about racial injustice and my call as a white pastor, what does that mean for me to continue to try and lead a community of reconciliation? And I can start to be afraid. It's easy to look at the rearview mirror and say, yeah, you really shouldn't have been so afraid in that moment. But what does it look like to recognize that God is with us, even in times of struggle? Psalm 23, the, the literal translation will say that even as I walk through the darkest valley, you are with me. It's translated sometimes the shadow of death, but it's this understanding that even as I'm in my most difficult space, you are with me. And not only are you with me, but you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Enemies may be a little strong for you, but who is it perhaps that comes to mind? And literally think of them. Have their face come to your mind? Who is it that you would feel a little bit of a higher level of anxiety if you were having lunch across from them. Somebody who wronged you, somebody who, who perhaps you did something to, who comes to mind? Psalm 23 says that because of God and who God is, and if you won't allow fear to take control of your heart, you can find hope and peace even there. This is the miraculous thing about Psalm 23, that it isn't peace when there's just perfect things going on and you aren't experiencing conflict. No, it's a peace that comes to us even as conflict is there. It requires something of us, not leading from fear. Finally, Psalm 23 asks that we would make the decision to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That we would actively put our hope and faith there. That we would choose, instead of sometimes looking to things that make us anxious or give us anxiety, instead we choose to recognize where God is leading us. 
Sometimes that means practicing spiritual disciplines that are deeply effective and transformative for you. Saying, yeah, I'm going to choose to seek out God's presence and God's goodness in my life. I'm going to recognize that God is leading me to quiet waters, to places that will still my heart. I'm going to choose to go there. In the feeding of the 5,000 story in Mark chapter 6, it gives this line that Jesus directed all the 5,000 people to sit down in groups on the green grass. And Mark is very specific, actually. This is an area that was a desert. It's, it's a place that is outside of, of the city. And so it's fascinating that Jesus has this group of people He recognizes their hunger. He recognizes that it's not good to send them back home. And he has them sit in this desert place on green grass. What would it look like for you to choose to sit at the feet of Jesus and to recognize that God leads us to green grass and stillness? even in difficult situations, in deserts, in hard places. That God does amazing work in people who are going through some incredibly difficult stuff. Think for a minute about the disciples and those others who were kind of in that band of disciples, including some of the women that were there. Mary Magdalene is one that comes to mind. Scholars think that it's likely that she was a prostitute that she was somebody who was very far from the message of Jesus when Jesus first called her. Luke has this odd note about her in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. This verse actually continues. It's one of my favorite little side notes in Scripture that the women are paying for Jesus' ministry. So all the independent women, throw your hands up at me on the chat. This is a pretty interesting like, little side note. Just FYI, the women are footing the bill for these like, low-life disciples, basically. They're, they're paying for Jesus' ministry. That's free, that little side note. But notice what it says about that, that Mary Magdalene, had seven demons. I don't even fully understand how you count at that point. Like, okay, there's one, there's two, there's, I don't fully understand how that all went down. But Luke is very specific. He's a doctor. He's trying to give us all this information. And he's saying, yeah, Mary had these demons that were called out of her. Mary is one of the ones who goes to the tomb and sees that it's empty Jesus invites people consistently around him who we wouldn't necessarily choose, who we wouldn't expect. Seven demons. Jesus says, no, you're welcome to be part of my ministry. You can be part of the crew who's funding me. You're welcome to be here. Jesus shows us what God is like with skin on. God is the same way. Though this has been an incredibly difficult year for all of us, everyone has been affected in one way or another. Some of you way more than me. It's sad and it's hard. And there's so much uncertainty. 
but may we recognize that God does God's best work in broken people who I think simply will do what Psalm 23 requires. I won't focus on what I lack. I'm going to choose to the best of my ability not to live with fear controlling me. I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May we understand that God does great work in broken people in all seasons of life. When we're next to green grass, when we get a chance to go through hard times, God hasn't left us. May we be the kind of people who live understanding that it is from the inside out that we are transformed and we desperately need God to continue to work in us. I think of Dallas Willard, who was a philosophy professor at USC for many years and has written so many fantastic books. I would recommend that you read any of Dallas Willard's work. He died in 2013, and those who were gathered there, his family and his friends in his hospital room, said that in his last moments, he was saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And those who were gathered in that room all say, he wasn't talking to us. Think about Bonnie Gentry, a true matriarch of our church, who passed away a few years ago, and I miss her all the time. She was literally part of helping to build the building that one day we will be able to come back to altogether. She was in her last days and not responsive. And our worship team went and sang around her bed. And even as she wasn't responding to questions or anything else in the room, as they sang some hymns that she recognized, she started mouthing the words. May we live with a deep sense of God's presence in all times and in all seasons with us. May we live one day to say when we meet God, thank you, thank you, thank you. And as we are maybe at the end of our lives, may we live with certain words on our hearts that come up even subconsciously because we know who our God is. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for Psalm 23 and the simple yet challenging three things it gives us to live as your people. May we not choose to focus on what we lack, but may we recognize the good that we do have and the good that is from you. May we live without fear controlling us, not because of our own gifts, but because of who you are. And help us to dwell in your presence constantly. Help us to just tether our hearts to your spirit and your goodness so that we might know you in good times and in bad times. 
Father, we pray for all of our world right now. There's just so much going on, and it just keeps coming. Father, we choose to seek your good and your face. May you lead us to green grass, and may we sit and hear your still, quiet voice, which calls all of us forward. Your son, Jesus, in my prayer. Amen. Let's worship together.